Amen. We come back to Hebrews chapter 4, and we pick up right where we left off last Sunday morning. Now, for the better part of a year, we've been walking through this letter of, uh, to the Hebrews, and it's an important letter. We come today to the end of what many scholars think is the first section of the letter, uh, dealing, first of all, with the Word of God, and we'll see that that is pretty clear in the text that there is some kind of demarcation there. We now will move into the priesthood of Christ, and that's important. Regardless of how we divide the letter up, we can see that it has focused on the Word of God. The very first verse, uh, the very first chapter was about the Word of God, wasn't it? God has spoken in times past to our fathers by the prophets, but He's spoken to us in different and better ways, hasn't He? In these final, these eschaton, these last days, He's spoken to us through His own Son, through His own Son. And then there is much said over the next few chapters about the word we've been given, because there was a, a word, if you will, given by the prophets and by Moses, a word described as a, a word, a law given, the word of God, the instruction of God, binding, authoritative, true. But we've been given a new word in Christ, a new covenant in Christ. And there is a distinction made there, isn't there? Because we see the old covenant was mediated by angels and by Moses, and the new covenant is mediated solely in Christ. A mediator on the heavenly end in the old covenant and one on the earthly or human end in the old covenant, one mediator in the new. And it says that's better. That's better because Jesus fulfills all those pictures, doesn't he, of God speaking to man and man ministering Uh, toward God, asking for intercession. These are the priest and prophet roles. Christ is the perfect fulfillment because He is both God and man. The perfect mediator. Why is the incarnation necessary? This is why. Because you need a perfect prophet, a perfect priest, a perfect king. All these require both human and divinity to make happen. And you need a perfect sacrifice. Not just the perfect priest to offer the sacrifice, but a perfect sacrifice. And there is no human sacrifice, solely human, that is without sin, that is spotless, that is perfect. But this lamb is spotless and perfect. So all of that goes to the heart of the theology of the Bible. But again, we're reminded of it here. There is a word, a new covenant that's spoken to us. Now remember this, that old covenant... Paul describes it as being as if no glory at all when compared to the glory of the new covenant, the glory that surpasses, but it was a glorious covenant. It was God speaking to man. There's much to be thought of in regard to that. But the point that the author makes in that warning that begins chapter 2 is, if there were sure punishments for those that disobeyed and broke and rebelled against that covenant, how much more weighty will the judgment be on those who violate this one? Because it's not mediated by Moses and angels. Not by servants, but by the Son. And as we've seen now for almost a year, the Son is of higher honor and glory than a servant. As glorious as Moses was. right? Not glorious, but as honorable, as faithful as he was. He was not Christ. He was not glorious. And so again, 
we want to recognize this important point that's being made here. If the covenant given by Moses and by angels carried just punishments, then how much more weighty will the punishments be for those who are violators of this covenant? Now that is established right off the bat. And we see all of that leading to this chapter because one of the points that's made is through the life of Moses and the example of Moses is we're not the first generation. There are those who came before us who gave an example to us, good or bad. And in this case, very bad, right? There was a wilderness generation talked about, spoken about in Psalm 95 who left Egypt, saw the wondrous workings of God, heard the word of God, were led out by God through his man, his apostle, his representative, Moses, and they didn't make it. They died in the wilderness. They never made it in to the promised land, which this book tells us was a picture of the rest offered, was a type of rest, a shadow of rest, would have been some measure of rest, but they didn't make it. They didn't make it because they disobeyed. And that disobedience, the author says, is an outworking of what was already in their heart, which was a lack of faith in God. They didn't believe Him. They didn't believe Him. And so this author says, you're also hearing the Word of God. You're seeing His power at work. He's led you out, has He not? Not out of slavery in Egypt, but He's led you out of slavery to sin and death. And that message that was proclaimed was marked with power and, and workings, miracles. So you've seen it. Will you follow the example of the wilderness generation or will you be faithful? Now, this is a message not only to them but to us, isn't it? It's very applicable to us. It wouldn't be given to us if it wasn't. It's given to us because we are in a similar position. They're in the position of, do they leave the church that they've identified themselves with and go back to the synagogue because it's a little easier road or do they remain identified with Christ? The author says, if you're the people of Christ, you'll remain here. If you leave, you'll show us that just like the previous generation we're speaking about that Psalm 95 mentions, the Word of God did not profit you. You heard it, but it did not profit you because, as this author says, it was not mixed with faith in the heart. So what will be said of you? What will your legacy be? What will the story of your generation be? What will your story be? Will it be that you are like your fathers who died in the wilderness, or will you actually enter the promised rest of God? Now, we looked last Sunday at a very important verse. He says, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. We spoke a little bit about diligence. Diligence is important. Diligence is something we're called to in a number of fronts. But here he says, diligent to enter the rest. But we've established you cannot enter that rest by anything you do in terms of works. And so what does he mean here? Ultimately means don't fail to observe the example that we've just spoken about. Don't, uh, don't fail to trust in Christ. Don't fail to trust in the promises of God. That is the way we get through these bumps in the road. Now, we come today to a text that's very important because it's used a lot. It's a text that we know very well, right? You hear a lot of people say, for the Word of God is living and active or powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And we often use it flippantly to mean that the Word of God will help us decide things, and I think all that's true. 
The Word of God is given to us for those purposes, but that's not the context here, is it? The context here is quite different. It's a warning context. A.W. Pink said you cannot separate this from the warning that's behind it, the warning that is intended in it. It is a warning passage, a warning that we must recognize that God knows what's in our hearts. And so again, we want to begin today by looking at this and and recognizing there is an urgency to this text. The author is speaking to the hearers in his day and to us through the power of the Spirit with urgency to listen to this warning. And so as we look at it today, I want to read it one more time. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, I want us to look at two points this morning as we think about this text. First of all, God's Word described. There isn't a description here that we need to think about, and also uh, God's grace required. And I think we'll see that the author is really speaking on these two points. So we want to continue to think about for a moment what we just spoke about, what we've been reading. There is a, a warning here to be diligent to enter this rest. What does he mean? Don't take it for granted. Don't take it lightly. Don't be dismissive of it. You need to take this very seriously. Just to put it simply, you need to take this very seriously. You need to be diligent in this. Think about this. Be thoughtful of how we enter the rest. If it were by works, then you would need to work harder. That would be diligence in that sense, wouldn't it? Work harder. But we know that that is not how we enter the rest of God. It is not by works. It is by faith. And so what he's really saying there is be diligent to make sure that you are not like those that came before you who did not believe. Think about it. Look in it. And notice, recognize that if you walk out the door, you're showing exactly where you stand. Diligence... I think in this case is something like be steadfast, right? Endure, persevere. Now this is something that we would say. How do we meet difficult times? We persevere through it. This author says be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall by the same example of disobedience. What is the alternative to not being diligent, to not being steadfast, to not Uh, persevering. It is to not enter the rest. It is to be like those in the wilderness who were identified with the people of God on the way out of Egypt but did not make it to the land of promise. They fell short. And this author says, you've seemed to have left Judaism. You've identified yourself with the church of, of the living God. You've said you're a Christian. You've said all these things. But is your testimony legitimate? Is it real? Are you truly amongst the people of God? Well, there's one sure fire test. Do you remain faithful to the end? Do you remain faithful to the end? The parable of the soils is the exact thing that's being spoken about here, isn't it? We spoke about this Wednesday night in our Pilgrim's Progress study. Four types of soil. Three sprung up. Only one made it. The other was stony ground. We... We're talking about that uh, just this past Wednesday night with Pliable. You know, that uh, he 
didn't like the persecution. He loved the promises. He loved all the offerings. He loved all the things that were promised to be given to the people of God. Sign me up, he said. But the first bump in the road, the first persecution, the first trouble, a simple fall into the slough of despond, and he's like, I don't want this. I want to go home. If this is what we get at the outset, what more hardships lay ahead? If you've read the book, you know a great many hardships lay ahead. And yeah, if you tumble and fall into the slough of despond and you're already ready to go home, you're not going to make it. You've got to have a little more perseverance than that. And that perseverance is a gift of God given to us. And so we need to recognize in this sense what he's saying here. This is a test. If you walk away, you show you have neither part nor lot with us. But if you remain faithful, what does it say? Your faith is real. You're a part of the people of God. You have received, as he says earlier, that heavenly calling. It's made evident in this way. Now, all of that is important because I said a moment ago, they've seen all the evidences and testimonies they need. They've seen signs and wonders when they heard the gospel proclaimed. They said they believed it. They accepted Christ as the the Messiah and the Savior and all the things that we've spoken about throughout this letter. They said, yes, we believe that. We put our trust and faith in Him. We recognize our works can avail us nothing, but it's only in Christ that we can be delivered and saved. And now you're saying, but I didn't expect all these bumps in the road. I didn't expect trouble. And you know what? It'd be a little bit easier to go back to the synagogue And I'm going to claim that's being faithful. I think it is, you know. I mean, I'm still going to be giving honor and glory to God. Maybe I don't name the name of Jesus as much. Maybe not at all. But God knows what's in my heart. God knows what's in my heart. Now, a lot of scholars say the segue is a non sequitur right here in this text. It's not. That's the very thing this author is saying. Yes, God does know what's in your heart. And when you walk away, you can't fool Him. You can't fool Him. You can gussy it up in pretty wrapping and outward dress, but it's still disobedience and rebellion against God. It's still apostasy. And that does not equal being amongst the people of God. You can't fool Him. And so before we continue down that road, let's think about for a moment how the Word of God is described here because it's central to this passage. He says the Word of God is living. Living, zao. That means it's alive, right? It's it's alive. It's a living thing. Now, Philip Hughes said that's to contrast against the way this author would say There's so many dead letters in the world, right? So many dead religions, dead letters in the world, things that no longer have significance or power. This never loses its significance or power. Never. Never will. Right? It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. It is alive. It is living. It's not a dead letter. It's moving. It's working. God is using it in powerful ways. And that brings us back to that second word. You know, it might be in some translations powerful and some active, but it really means the same thing. Energase, it means it's at work. It's doing something. It's accomplishing something for God. His Word doesn't just go out and do nothing. 
Now, where can we find a testimony of that? How about Isaiah 55, 11, right? So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. God is saying, when I send my word out, it does exactly what I want it to do. Listen to this. He says, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is powerful. God's word doesn't fail in that sense, does it? He doesn't say, let there be light, and it doesn't happen. He doesn't say the Assyrians are going to come in and conquer Judah, and it doesn't happen. He doesn't say the Assyrians are going to rise in power, and it doesn't happen. If God declares it, it will come to pass. And the Scriptures tell us He sees the end from the beginning, right? It's not a mystery to Him. He's not guessing. He's not stabbing in the dark. He's proclaiming what is to come to pass. And that's what this is telling us. It is a, an active word, a lively word, a powerful word. And so we see that. But notice His word is also powerful in the sense that it's sharp. Now, it pictures here a sword. And there's... Some people will say, well, is this really more like a knife? No, it's a sword. That's why it's always translated sword. I mean, it, it's a shorter sword than we're used to, but Roman, Greek, and Hebrew swords were shorter than we're used to. They were still called swords. And this is a sword, and it's sharp, two-edged. Whichever way you swing it, it will cut. It will cut. And notice, he says, it's very good for separating things. It's that kind of sharp scalpel-like in its sharpness. You need to get in there finely and cut. God's Word will do it. It even separates things that we don't think are separable. Soul and spirit. Joint and marrow. Now, with our modern technology, maybe that doesn't speak to us as much as it would have to their generation with all of our surgical technology, but the point is the same, isn't it? God's sword can separate what we can't. His Word can separate down to the most tiny details. It's a discerning Word. And that's what He's telling us here. And that doesn't just describe, uh, this passage, by the way, doesn't just describe the Word of God. It goes on to describe God Himself. But let me say this right before it does that. Notice it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It doesn't just separate that which is external, but that which is internal may remember in Romans, Paul speaks about his trouble with the law, and he looked at all the laws, and he said, you know, doing pretty good one through nine. I haven't, well, I mean, he later, of course, would say that he had killed someone because he took uh, his participation in Stephen's death and, and maybe some others. But he could say, I could maybe keep the external law in that sense. I could, from this point forward, not kill anyone. I could, from this point forward, not commit adultery. I could not bear false witness. Those things I might be able to do, but he kept coming back to that one law, thou shalt not covet. And he realized there's an internal element of the law too, right? It's what Jesus gets to in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just that you haven't killed. Have you had hatred in your heart, the root of murder? It's not just that you haven't committed adultery. Have you had lust in your heart? We're all guilty. This is the point. We've all had these thoughts and moments. We've broken the whole of the law because we've broken a part of the law. And so again... Uh, this is the very thing that this is telling us. It, it discerns even our inward motivations and thoughts, our intents of the heart. What are our intentions? God knows them. I can do a good deed for a bad purpose. God isn't fooled. 
Any more than when Christ called out the Pharisees and other ones that would pray loudly, not because they wanted to honor God, they wanted honor for themselves. Right? They're called hypocrites, actors, over and over again. And we see it here in the text again. God's Word is a discerner of these inward things. Man judges on the outside. God judges the heart. But as I said, it goes on to describe God because it says here that no creature is hidden from His sight. None of us can hide. In the Revelation, they want to have the mountains fall down on them thinking somehow they can escape God. Not going to work. Not going to work. You can fool everybody else. You can cover up your sin and fool everybody else. God is not fooled. It's not hidden from His eyes. And it even goes further to say, all things are naked and open to His eyes. Not only is it not hidden, it's revealed plainly to Him. There is no mystery. Everything we've ever done, He knows. Now, why is this a warning? Because this ends any hope of us standing on our own, does it not? What man is going to say, okay, based on the measure you've just given, I'm good? Not one of us. None of us can live up to this. And if we go back through what we talked about in the sermon on Joshua, we see the root problem here. The law calls us to perfect obedience, and that's it. Take the land. You will inhabit it. You must obey the laws. I will bless you as you're obedient in the land. Oh, and Moses says, by the way, it's not going to work. Before they ever went in, Moses said this. You will be exiled. God is going to judge you, and then He'll one day bring you back. And the thing that He keeps telling you you need to do for yourself that you cannot do, which is circumcise your heart, says it a few times there in Deuteronomy. And then that great promise in 30 through 33 says, when God brings you back, He will circumcise your heart. Now, this is the promise that goes along with the new covenant, a, a, a covenant not written on tablets of stone, but written on the heart. The very thing Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians. Not stone tablets, but sarks, flesh. And so again, we stand before this and we recognize this is a problem. And it's made more clear to us because that sword has a second meaning. It's not just something to divide, is it? But the sword represents judgment. There's no way around that. We can turn to Romans 13, which as you get your Free Grace Broadcaster next Sunday, it's going to be even the thing pointed to on the very front of the issue. And it says that God has given His minister, the government, the right of the sword. What does it mean? Judgment. Judgment. Right? And that's what this is talking about. The Word of God stands in a sense in judgment over us. Now, uh, we have to recognize this. This is the very thing that Paul points to in Romans, that the law points out what we're to do, and it points out that we haven't done it. Peter says, the Jerusalem Council, we have to recognize that the law, as we're talking about it, is a yoke that our fathers weren't able to bear, we're not able to bear. It brings judgment upon us. Doesn't mean it's evil. Paul makes that clear in Romans. It is good. The law of God is good. It is His perfect Word. There's something wrong with our heart. As I hit my microphone. There's something wrong with our heart. Got to not go to those heart movements with the, with the mic on. But there's something wrong with our 
our response to the law. I gave that example about if I said to you all on the way out, don't look in the prayer room. Right? And we have a camera there. We're all going to look in the prayer room. Because we want to judge for ourselves why we're not supposed to look in the prayer room. And is it a good enough reason? Have I given you a reason not to trust me? That you should maybe look in? I hope not. But it doesn't really matter, does it? You're going to look in because you want to judge for yourself. And in some way, that's a little evidence that we talked about in Romans of what that rebellious nature is in our hearts. We want to decide. And so there's a problem. The Word points that out to us over and over again. He tells us what to do. We say no. We've got a different path. Different way of going. You know, God, your way... You know, it's not that I want to dishonor you, but I just think I found a better path. I found another way to do it. A better way. Might even think of a moment of what we've been looking at in Pilgrim's Progress, right? He's going on a path. And Mr. Worldly Wiseman comes to him and says, you know, something, uh, I, I think what you're doing is noble. It's a good idea. You need to get that burden off your back. And you need to be reunited very quickly with your family. But here's the thing. The path you're on is attended with many difficulties and struggles and challenges Many terrible things that you're going to have to face. Let me point you down another path that's a little bit easier. We're always trying to find those roadmaps to find diversions and other ways of doing things. And sometimes we kind of say, oh, well, I don't think that's a sin. But if we're not doing what God has told us to do, for certainly if we're disobeying what He's told us to do, but sin, that root word, Hamartia, it means to miss. It's literally what it means. It's an archery term. It's drawing an arrow and you miss the bullseye. And what that tells you, even failing to do what God has called you to do, is itself a sin. Not living up to the law is a sin. This is why Paul makes it clear to us we are not able to keep the law. It is an impossibility. By the law shall no flesh be justified. This is what the Scriptures tell us, and we see it again in this text. So we're kind of put in a position where we say, wait a minute, we're all obstinate, we're all sinners, we've all gone astray. Again, Scripture tells us this clearly, New Testament and Old. We've all gone astray, and it can't be hidden from God. It cannot be hidden from Him. Why? Because first of all, His Word is so sharp it discerns every motive of our heart. Even where I've done something good but for the wrong purpose, to glorify myself, that is a sin. If I got up here this morning thinking, I'm going to try to preach a good sermon so people will be impressed with me, that's a sin. And We don't often think this way. I can ride along and get a little glory for myself. It's not the way it works. To God be the glory. To God be the glory. And what we need to recognize as we think about this is, This is a problem because we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And the Word of God discerns all of that out. And nothing is hidden from the eyes of God. And that's where our text ends. And you say, well, there's no hope for any of us. And we would say, bingo, you're exactly right about that. There is no hope for any of us in the law. For we are all breakers of law. But as this author is telling us, as Paul tells us elsewhere, as really the whole of Scripture tells us, all of that points to what we do need. 
a mediator, a savior, a redeemer. What we really need is a high priest and a sacrifice and a prophet and a priest and a king. We need all those things that we talk about all the time that Jesus came to offer, came to be and fulfill. And if you don't believe that's exactly where this author is going, he brings you to this point where you recognize that we have no hope in ourselves. And he goes back to a theme he's already brought up in chapter 2. If you don't believe me, just let's move into 14 for a second, see where we're going. Seeing then, so based on that, seeing then that we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. How do we hold fast our confession? In our strength? No, but by putting our faith in Him. This is what this letter has been arguing through this entire way. There's no question who He is. He's the one through whom all things were made. He's the heir. He's the the very image, if you will, the, the brightness of God's glory. And He came into this world, and He went to Calvary's cross, and He completed this great work of salvation. And in doing that, He has ascended to the right hand of the Father on high, and He's been given a name that's greater than the angels, as He has become greater than the angels. And we talked about that back in chapter 1. Very difficult. How are you going to say the second person trinity has now become greater than the angels? But we talked about it. It's talking about him in this messianic role. He fulfilled his mission. And he is the only begotten Son of God reigning at the right hand of the Father on high. That is what we're talking about here. This is the one. This is the one in whom we trust. And so again, the answer is going to be Be diligent, but not in trusting you. Be diligent in trusting Him. Be diligent in trusting Him. Are there going to be stumbles along the way? Yes, expect them. Right, But we have a high priest. And the beauty of our high priest is He's not separated from us. He came, if you will, as we are. He took on flesh. He came into this world. He was tempted and tried as we are, and yet without sinning. And that's important because what that means is we have a high priest who can sympathize with our struggles. He's been through them too. He didn't sin, but He's able to provide us help in our moment of trial, temptation, and where we might be there just at the point, if you will, of failing. Now, why is that important? Context, right? Context. Who's this being written to? We've talked about it 500 times, haven't we? A group of people who have claimed that they are Christians, who don't like the bumps in the road, and they're hearing there's another way. The parallels, by the way, to the scene with Mr. Worldly Wiseman could not be more extensive, could they? Because Christian comes, is on his way to... uh, to the cross, well, really to the, to the wicked gate at this point. He's, he's on his way, Mr. Worldly Wiseman tells him, you know what, there's another way. Look to Moses. Look to Sinai. Look to legality. Look to civility. Look to morality. Look to those answers. Look there. And Christian, temporarily fooled, isn't he? Goes down that path. Realizes very quickly there is no hope there. But again, we need to recognize the journey is dangerous. The journey is difficult. Following Christ is not promised to be easier. 
We've talked about this so many times lately in Matthew's Gospel, in Pilgrim's Progress, in these sermons. It is not easy. And yet what we recognize in the text is we've been given everything we need for that journey. What would you pack if you were going on a dangerous journey? There'd be a long list. I've seen a few of those survival shows, you know, on television where they, they want a knife and a compass and fire starter and they've got a list of important things. What do we need? We've been given it. We need a faithful high priest. We've been given it. Christ intercedes on our behalf. He comforts us. He succors us. He helps us in our moment of need. We have that. We also need a comforter. We've been given a comforter, haven't we? The Holy Spirit who guides us and helps us and convicts us according to the Word of God. And we've been given the Word of God itself. The full revelation that God has offered, we have it. We have it. To go back one more time to Pilgrim's Progress, when he was in the slough, he couldn't find his way out. Why? Those steps he couldn't find were the promises of God. What's the point? The Word is a valuable thing God has given us to steady our path, to direct us, to help us, to keep our eyes focused on the right things, all of those things we need. So everything I need, I have. But none of it was earned by me. None of it built by me. None of it fashioned by me. All of it given to me. All of it given to me by God's grace. All of it. Given by the grace of the person and or given by the grace of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. All of it. And so we have everything we need, no matter how difficult the path is, no matter how difficult the times would see, no matter how difficult the terrain would be, we have everything we need. All we are called to do, this author says, is trust in Christ. Do what they did not do in the wilderness when their path got difficult. And all you've got to do is go back and read. Any bump in the road, the complaining began. The griping began. This author says, no, God's calling for better things from you. The people of God are to be a rejoicing people, a trusting people. And that means hold fast to Christ. Your only hope. Your only hope. And especially as the day uh, seems difficult, especially as we need those, that help in those times of great need, that's when we most hold on to Christ. That's how we persevere. The difference in that slough is that Pilgrim was still moving toward the celestial city. Moving toward those steps, even if he couldn't see them. Pliable, going home. The difference is, my friends, we must trust in Christ, the author and finisher of our faith.